I now call this meeting of the Amateur Detective Club to order. I am Melissa Maley, the spy. I'm Tyler Riley, cop and a half. I'm Tristan Miller, the saucy sleuth. And with us is... Uh, it's Janet. <laughs> oh, <Old> Clooby. <laughs> Perfect. Love it. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash adcpod and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash adcpod. And the novel we listened to this week was on Audible, I believe, for at least certainly for me. Exclusively, um, I believe. Yeah. Oh, exclusively. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, and it was uh, what we are talking about this week is The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins and read by Ian Holm. Mm-hmm. Now, old Clooby, you <laughs> chose this book. Uh, why? What's your story? What's the story there? Well, I chose it because I, I, it, you know, the, the sort of way into it for me was I, I don't know if you guys listen to it, but I, I definitely enjoy Phoebe Judge's show Criminal. Um, mm. uh, she's quite adorable and, um, and, and really, you know, has sort of made a podcast that, that attacks uh, the idea of what is criminal in so many different ways. I've been consistently so impressed over the years. Uh, and then when the pandemic started, she began offering a second podcast for free called Phoebe Reads a Mystery. And she was re- so she started reading some classics, um, some Agatha Christie, some um, Wilkie Collins. She read The Moonstone. Might have been like the first or second. I think it was the second book she read. And I wasn't familiar with Wilkie Collins at all. Um, and The Moonstone was a very funny, very, it was very funny, uh, but clearly set, you know, in the, in the what now feels like distant past. And with a little uh, scrabbling around on the internet, come to find out that Wilkie Collins was a friend of Charles Dickens, um, huh. wrote way, way more books than, again, like I felt bad. I mean, I'd heard of The Woman in White, and that was it. That mm-hmm. was all I had ever heard of and had never read it. Or, um, And so uh, so I, I, I really enjoyed The Moonstone. I thought, well, let's see. You know, a lot of what I choose on Audible, I am an avid Audible user and um, always run out of credits before the year is up and have <laughs> to buy more. I just love audiobooks. And when I saw that there was a version that uh, Sir Ian, please, Sir Ian Holm uh, <laughs> had read. Oh, yes. I was like, this bodes well. And also it was like 24 hours worth of listening or something. So bless you guys for being willing to <laughs> jump into that. But I get excited when a book is long. It feels like yeah. I'm getting more for my money. And uh, <laughs> hopefully it will be good. Um, but I I really was um, totally captivated by it in the way that one can be with a just a truly kind of great classic Shakespearean trained actor who somehow manages to utter every syllable as if it is the most important thing he needs to tell someone before he dies. Like it's so... <laughs> Yes. Profoundly yeah. like delivered. You feel like, is he there? What's happening? 
Yeah. And, uh, and I, but also, and, and was, and I was also so charmed by that. And I also really got hugely invested in the characters. And I also appreciated the same sort of, I mean, look, anything you read from the past, there's going to be like things that are complicated about it because that's what mm. uh, cultural evolution is all about. Thank uh, the gods and universe and whatever else, the goddesses, etc. But um, he really was uh, like Charles Dickens, um, very interested in you know the sort of like why why is there this sort of like um, assumed class system that is inescapable and you know sort of there's a lot of kind of moral quandaries that I think he and Dickens really liked to sort of jump into with respect to that and so it's for me it's nice to hear it's like oh yeah people were asking hard questions back then some of them are even still very hard questions you know about um humanity and about how we choose to treat each other and all that kind of stuff but it was also just like kind of a great class it just felt like a great classic mystery to me yeah Hmm. I, I was really interested uh we have uh Tristan sent us the Wikipedia link and uh, the sentence that stood out to me at first was the story is sometimes considered an early example of detective fiction, like considered to be among the first mystery novels. Um, Mm -hmm. So it it was like, oh, I not nuts. I guess we should. Yeah. In this uh, murder mystery or mystery review podcast that we do it's probably appropriate that we yeah for sure (laughs) we look into one of the one of the originals um yeah yeah, that's kind of why i thought it would be maybe a good pick too yeah because it just has that real roots in the beginning of of this kind of storytelling for sure Mm -hmm. and uh we started out with and still uh are working on the large canon of agatha christie (laughs) Um, that's right so and uh he of course wilkie collins of course predates agatha christie um, so, you know, it's nice to think that maybe, I, I mean, I would imagine she was an avid reader, of course, as mm. well, uh, that she might've read this and gotten some inspiration from it as well. So, you know, like it's, it's, it's fun to see the evolution, not just from the 1930s, uh, and whatnot when she was writing, but like even earlier than that. Um, and it makes sense that he was friends with Dickens. I love, yeah. Dick, I love Dickens and I can see the, you know commonalities <laughs> as could i for yeah. for better and worse in my opinion <laughs> uh, uh this in in my little bit of research i realized that uh about about a third of the way through i realized that like this feels like it was a serial oh, story sure. that was compiled absolutely and it was absolutely and it and it was in um, Dickens's uh, magazine that he published in the 1800s. And it was like one of those things of like, ah, yes, the old pay by the word method of writing. <laughs> yeah. How many can I shove in one sentence? Yeah. Um, but overall, a beautiful language. And it makes sense that they were friends and uh, so forth. Yeah. yeah gotta love uh, the hustle. Gotta, <laughs> love, gotta the love the hustle. <laughs> Do you listen? What speed do you did you find yourself listening on? I'm always curious about people's listening speeds. Times one. Gotcha. Normal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Almost always because uh, there was once. I think it was when we were doing the audiobook of Murder on the Orient Express, which we had already done. Or there was there was one narrator. Mm. There was one performer who read a book at like. A very slow speed that I did speed it up. Murder for Christmas. I was just was about it Murder to say for that. Christmas? Yeah, oh. I, I put that on two and a half. 
Wow. That's saying yeah. a lot. Yeah. And I'm so behind in audiobooks that I didn't know you I didn't know you could adjust the speed to be perfectly frank. And I, I, I probably would have on both occasions. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yes. What speed do you listen at, uh, listen to it at, Janet? Uh, I think for that one, I I I, fa- I think like 1.2 was the sweet spot, which I'm so impressed mm. that they have now rolled it out so that you can like do 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, because it used to just be one, one and a half, two, two and a half. And right. those tiny little increments kind of make a difference. Like it can make a difference between something that almost loses my interest to something that, you know, if I put it too fast, I feel myself getting anxious for, you know, some reason. Like, why do I feel very tense right now? Like, oh, okay, this is like just that little extra bump of speed is clearly that's where my brain likes to process information. So I feel like I've been hovering in the 1.2, 1.3 range for people who aren't, yeah, just reading at this at a snail's pace, which there are some where you're like, and wow. a bump of speed is how, how I usually read books. That's so. right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Got to get that kick. Yeah. Get that little yeah. kick of energy. Focus. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um. So, I, I should we get into summarizing it? Yeah, I, guess, I, I yeah. should think so. Uh, we meet Walter Hartwright, and he has this friend, Professor Pesca, uh, yes. who uh, he has saved. Professor Pesca's life. Then uh, Pesca gets very excited because he finds an opportunity for Hartwright, who is a, a drawing teacher, to go teach this pair of sisters on a fine estate, be their drawing master for the fall for like four months or something like that. Uh, and he's very, very excited and delighted. You know, my dear friend, I have found something that will advance your situation and and get you work. I'm so glad I found this opportunity for you. Uh, And so Hartwright then. (laughs) Very similar to me quickly emailing a backstage notice to a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. (laughs) But like in the this is your life this will change your life this backstage notice that you also do have to apply for i didn't like yeah full Mm -hmm. i didn't get you the part you do still have to go through the whole interview (laughs) audition process yeah that's right so then he applies for the position and gets it uh and then basically sets out on his journey for uh for this fine estate where these uh these two pretty much adult daughters like young adult daughters live or not college-ish age i imagine like early 20s yeah yeah and it's the night before he's leaving right he's walking down the street at nighttime and he's approached by the titular character yeah yes the woman in white herself who is not fully present we'll say basically she says, you, you seem nice. Could you please ask me no questions, but just help me get to my friend's house? Sure. Yes. And he, being the kindly man that he is, says, okay, sure, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and what the way an she... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the way it's described is that she appears as if, like, out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah 
And then he learns that she's escaped from an asylum by the two men that have followed her that question him about her after she's gone yeah, away. Pretty much. Cool. So, okay, great. That's all done. He gets safely to the estate called Limeridge House in Cumberland. Uh, and he meets uh, the invalid Frederick Fairley, who is the uncle of the two. Trist, Tristan, how do you feel about this character? Oh, he's such a fun character. Uh-huh. Absolutely ghastly human being, but such a fun character. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of those sorts very in funny. this. Yeah, very funny. Very funny book. He's a, he, he, he's a hypochondriac and and is perpetually annoyed and doesn't want to talk to anybody and on just like a gut level i understand that <laughs> yeah i thought i thought you might have some sympathy um yeah. there are moments during this book where it is very clear that all of his motivations have everything to do with what is going to get me left alone <laughs> yeah the soonest <laughs> 100%. He's just like, please leave me be. But he is in charge of these two. Um, I believe they're stepsisters because they have different names. Half-sisters. Half-sisters, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they have the same f- mother. Mother? Is that right? It doesn't mother. matter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they have the same Okay. Yes. Right, okay. The older sister is uh, Marion Holcomb, who is the best. Mm-hmm. The, the most fantastic person who he meets first, um, who is taller, a little bit older. I'm sure she's just like 25 or something. Um, mm-hmm. But she is she is extremely smart, uh, very, uh, very, you know, driven by logic and whatnot. She is often compared to men and uh, yeah, bemoans the fact that she is a woman it's very like Beatrice and much ado about nothing kind of deal Mm. like oh that I were a man uh kind of stuff um but yeah I mean I have the same thought every day (laughs) (laughs) oh if I were a man and not three boys stacked up in a trench coat perpetually (laughs) yeah which is Uh, also our logo yes yes Pretty much. That's just a I self-portrait mean, really that, I, that I made, if you can believe. Did you study with an art teacher? Yes, I did, actually. Ooh. In Cumberland. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and she's great. And then there's also, oh, Jeepers. What is the... Laura? Laura. 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 Laura Fairley. Laura Fairley. Yes. Uh, who is the younger sister and she's probably about she's 20 at this point um and walter in pretty rapid succession falls hopelessly in love with laura of that i'm fairly certain oh oh Oh. i didn't know you were gonna laura yourself to those sorts of jokes (laughs) (laughs) it's our uh it is our entire brand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Months pass. There's some drawing teaching going on. Yeah. Some stolen glances. Absolutely nothing happens because it's the 1800s. Yes. 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 But a lot of Hugh Grant. Um, I uh, uh, terribly sorry. Uh, um, uh, e, uh. Oh, 
I miss Hugh Grant. I know he's doing things still, but just not as much. They fall in love and uh, they don't talk about it or do literally anything about it. But Marion, being perceptive as she is, picks up on it and says, listen, Walter, yeah. we got to have a talk. You got to go. Yeah, Laura's I... engaged. I, I have seen that the way you look at each other, mm-hmm. you, you got to excuse yourself because... This is gonna. This isn't gonna go well for anybody if you stick around. Yeah, I not Which being a brick wall have noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My uncle, meanwhile, being a brick wall, not a not a clue. <laughs> yeah. So Walter is like, "Hey, I need to be released from my my contract early." To Mister Fairley, who is like, "If it will mean you stop talking to me, by all means, leave." <laughs> yeah. I didn't care for you anyhow. You you didn't teach me how to draw good. I don't... I'm done. Yeah, basically. Uh, Not an English teacher either, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they make all the arrangements to for Walter to leave. and But he's, like, delayed by a couple of, you know... We don't have the internet in this time, so... <laughs> Very important. You probably should have said that earlier. People have been thinking, but what about the internet? They thought to themselves, why can't you just Google the woman in white and see if anything comes up after you've met her? Yeah, exactly. Ask Jeeves and put in. That's right. But I'm sure there was a literal Jeeves at that time. Uh, True. 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 (laughs) I have been thinking though during this book about how much trouble could have been saved if there were like text messages and google um and i mean you just can't write this kind of thing set today that's what Um, i think is so comforting about it there's that's the thing that the pandemic has proven i think for many of us is like give me something that's so far in the past it feels adorable Mm. yeah for sure no absolutely um, but it's, uh, but is it is extremely charming how they have to write letters about absolutely everything because that is how they corresponded. So about twenty letters have to be passed along, and train arrangements have to be made before he can actually leave. So uh, he's around, and then a strange woman appears. Turns out it is the same woman in white that he had seen before. And she wants to give Laura a letter or she delivers the letter first and then he comes across her. Something like that. Uh, But she gets a letter to Anne basically saying, do not marry Sir Percival Glyde. He's bad news. Do not like him. Save yourself. They're trying to investigate uh, what has gone on that is so terrible with Percival Glyde and uh, but meanwhile he's on his way to the house Walter's still there um, and it comes out that Laura's mother Mrs. Fairley had taken care of this woman in white when she was you know a child when uh, and her name the woman in white's name is Anne Catherick it comes out and they bear a striking resemblance to one another Laura and Anne do um, but Laura's mother always told Anne that she loved it when women dressed in white. And so Anne says, okay, great. I'm going to do that forever. 
Yeah. Every single day. Yes. Um, yes. So Walter leaves. He says his sad goodbyes to his his students and promises to write them. It's very sentimental, very sad. Uh, and in pretty rapid succession, um, Marion sets him up so he goes on an expedition to South America. <laughs> yeah, which is like, get away. Leave I mean, the country. Yeah. But Cheaper. he... He kind of wants to, too. Like, yeah. it's... He's, They're both like, would it be such a shame if I died? I don't know. I feel pretty depressed, and you don't want to see me ever again. Yeah. Let's find out. Yeah. Live yeah. a little. Or don't. Live a little less. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So then... Sorry, I just thought of, like, the Taco Bell mm-hmm. font. <laughs> live a little less rather than live moss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, if you eat enough Taco Bell, that is essentially exactly what yeah. it should be. What you're doing to yourself. Yeah. That's so good, but so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so Percival Glide shows up and it's settled. Basically, Laura says, listen, I am in love with someone else. If you're still cool with this, we can get married. Yeah. And he says, you know what? I admire you all the more for you telling me this and it will be my life's object for you to be, to actually fall in love with me. And she's like, I can't, but <laughs> I'll still nice marry. Try. Yeah. I'll still marry you if you want. And he says, yeah, absolutely. He's very polite, very mannerly. Um, so we have kind of in, in the investigation of, trying to figure out why Anne Catherick was trying to tell everyone that he was a terrible person. Um, Nasty man. Yeah. Basically, she's saying he committed me to this asylum for no reason. And he's like, well, but maybe it was a good reason that I did or something along those lines. Well, yeah. He's like, have you met her? She seems odd and she's clearly not well so yes of course i did the right thing and committed her to an institution because she's clearly unwell yeah i mean this is the period of time that like if a woman talks back they can essentially just be committed commit her absolutely yeah absolutely uh and so everyone is kind of like he seems fine so uh (laughs) they do get married um and the subject of the will is under much contention. We get a narrative from the lawyer, um, the family lawyer, who is deeply trusted by the two sisters. And he basically says, if I had a daughter, I would not let her marry this guy because of the way that, you know, her money is going to be dispersed. It, it, it's just, it's not a good, basically, it's a real bad marriage arrangement financially for Laura's interests. It all works out for Sir Percival. Okay. So Mm -hmm. they get married. They go to Europe for like six months and they are hanging out with this couple, Count Fosco and Countess Fosco. Fosco, uh, Countess Fosco is Laura's aunt. um, And she is totally devoted to her husband, Count Fosco, who is an Italian man. Um, And he is enormous as described just the biggest man just the biggest man you've ever seen yeah i i pictured john reese davies in this role which i would i would love 
to see that. I was thinking Danny DeVito as the penguin. <laughs> just blown up. Just yeah. Like digitally just taller, made larger. But like the same proportions. Yeah. Short. Yeah. Ugh. Spherical. Like a globe. Mm. Um I cannot believe so, how not deep into the book we are. I'm so sorry I picked this book. I know. We've been it's talking okay. for a yeah. half an hour, and I feel like you're like 10% into the book. I feel bad. It is totally okay. Um, it's wonderful. It, it like There's so much rich stuff in it. Um, and so, so Count Fosco has been around, and he seems really great when Marion is reunited with them. She's like, he's really interesting. Seems very nice. Mm. And yeah. Laura, Laura immediately is like, absolutely not. I hate him the worst. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. And so now we're in Marion's narrative because this is ri- written by the first person point of view of many different characters, mostly Walter, um, especially at the beginning. And then, but like it goes into, now we're basically in the portion of Marion's diary. So, mm. Uh, Marion is, it, you know, very perceptive, but and she seems to she likes this guy. So they hang out for a little while. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's very charming, very gallant, very eccentric. Also, he has he has a cockatoo and parakeets that he'll do tricks with, and and five white mice in a cage. He is just a full character. Yeah. And Fosco, I've never seen anything like him before since. Fosco, don't I cannot compare him. I can't really compare him to anyone. Like you can say, yeah. well he's kind of like this in this way and he's kind of like this in this way, but there's no one that you're like, you know, the quintessential obese psychopath <laughs> who has tremendous respect for intelligent women who trains birds. Like there's no <laughs> That's not yeah. on the map. And I really respect that. I was like, I when I was listening to it, I was telling Brandon, like, I was like, I don't, he's really strange and kind of like broke the mold. And I don't think I've ever seen anything like it since. Like, he's not Hannibal yeah. Lecter. He's not, you know what I mean? Like, it's just very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's so charming, but he's also like, feels no empathy. Yeah, it's very interesting because there's like, I think... <laughs> John Hodgman used this to like describe himself of like there's so many affects that you can't get a bead on what you should make fun of <laughs> like it feels kind of that way of like there's so many layers to this man so no one can get at the real person yeah whatsoever and this kind of comes up a little bit later but he has a strange Italian accent it's not a full Italian accent he speaks English remarkably well yeah and there's no stuttering or stammering or searching for words, which um, which Marion is like, huh, that's weird. Yeah. Having yeah. known Italians. He also seems very suspicious of other Italians and is like, hey, there any other Italians around this neighborhood? Like immediately. Right. Yeah. Which they're like, no. Okay. <laughs> We're wet But black if I water? said it. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Um. Uh, yeah. We're in the so, middle of nowhere. We're not a state. Right. I mean, nobody here but us and all of the servants. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So Percival needs something signed by his wife. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And she wants to read it for some reason before she signs it. Crazy. Uh, and then there's this whole to do because she doesn't want to. And Marion backs her up. And so does Count Fosco. 
Yeah. Like, no, she should read it before she signs it. And Percival flies into a temper and, you know, dismisses them all and, like, you know, gets in a cart and drives away. So that all makes it come out. Laura confesses to Marion that, you know, he's really been pretty horrible uh, and she basically hates it here. And it's not great. Marriage isn't going super well. So Marion and Laura are on their guard. It is coming out that Sir Percival needs money. Like now Marion grows more and more suspicious Mm -hmm. and eventually decides to spy on a conversation that... Um, Count Fosco and and Sir Percival are having with uh, with each other. Yes, and one of the main causes of her suspicion is Anne Catherick has showed up once again and been like, "I have a secret to tell you, but I'm I'm afraid to tell it because it's a secret about Percival and he's like five feet away right yeah. now." And there's a lot of like going down a wood trail and there's someone behind them, but they can't figure it out. It's all very ooh. But yeah. yes, she she's spying on these these two men. Uh, and it's raining outside. It's very, very tense. She's uh, on the roof. Sounds yeah. crazy, no? I mean, she's wearing like all these 1850s clothes. Um, just so many clothes. It, it, <laughs> you know, you know how they did back then. Um, weighed down with the weight of the rain, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it's very difficult, uh, and they have taken every precaution not to be overheard. So we hear this conversation, and Count Fosco is like, it sounds like you're only really going to get money if your wife is dead. How much do you really like her? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's at that point that it's like, oh, oh, no, you're... You're the worst, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Also legit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the narrative of Marion kind of abruptly stops. Because she gets sick. Because she she gets sick. And she's like, bleh. And then Fosco finds the diary and writes his own little entry. And he is in love with Marion. Oh, yeah, totally. He is just like at maximum pervert for her. He says basically that it is such a shame that my, you know, my adversary should be such a good woman, such an impressive woman as Marion. And it's really a shame that we're cross purposes, but, you know, I got to do what I got to do. And he Mm -hmm. like as he writes, he basically he's like, I just read her entire diary and now I have it. Ha ha. It's. (laughs) chilling it is absolutely chilling when he takes over yeah because and i was like going outside to walk the dog and it was like a little breeze i got literal chills i was like oh oh no (laughs) oh no because marion's like conspiring to get them out of there you know she is Mm -hmm. putting all these plans in place writing to walter like she is trying to set everything right so that um they can escape she has written a letter to her uncle she has written a letter to um, her uh, her sister's maid, who was you know unceremoniously dismissed for no reason after, you know, um, after she had gone to meet with Anne, mm. in fact, and so she's like really working on this plan, 
made sure that no one intercepted these letters, was very, very careful about the whole thing. And it's just all been ruined. And it was at, I think it was at that point that I was almost like, I give up. I like, I can't, if they are, (laughs) if this is just going to be about the downfall of these women, I'm going to be so angry. (laughs) Um, Because you do, you get so attached to them. So then we have shorter narratives of like some a couple of servants about events that take place. And essentially what happens is Marion gets very sick. She's like completely laid out sick in bed. She has tried to get their uncle to take Laura in so that she can escape from the the manor. And he is like, "Mm, I mean, if you really have to, I guess that's fine. But Count Fosco has gone to see him as well and kind of meddled in that. So essentially it is arranged that while Marion is still sick, Laura is being told that she is better and is already in London. So they're sending Laura out to meet her sister in London where they will then meet and then go on to their uncle's house. But she has to stay the night at Count Fosco's first. And in the course of this, according to a servant that is there at Count Fosco's in London, the servant says, Lady Glyde came and she died like yeah. the second day I was there. Also a great name for razors. Lady Glyde. <laughs> Lady Glyde, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking Count Fosco's would be a great pizza place. It really would. Mm. And then Walter comes back from his exploration. Yes. And he's like, doop, doop, doop. I miss, I miss her. Doop, doop, doop. I, oh, I heard she's dead. Oh, no. From my, my, my family. Oh, gosh. I'm going to go visit the grave. And then when they visit the grave, oh, both Marion and Laura are there. And he's like, what the heck? And then they explain it, which was that, that Marion found Laura in the asylum under the name of Anne Catherick. So all three of them steal away in a flat in London to hide from Count Fosco and Percival Glyde. And this is where the true investigation of the whole thing begins. Yes. And this would be at about mm, 15 hours into the, the narration. <laughs> it seems very much for a few chapters, like Laura is dead. And yeah. it's very suspect because obviously Count Fosco is like, oh, it doesn't seem as though even though Percival seems like, you know, I'm, I don't I'm not really that interested in killing my wife. Mm. It seems like he could be brought around to the idea. Yeah. And um, then Percival also goes off to Europe during the time that she mysteriously dies. Right. To clearly have an alibi. And one thing that's becoming clear or unclear in the course of all these narratives is that no one can remember the date that Laura traveled from uh, her, you know, home with her husband to London. Yeah. Absolutely no one can nail that date down. It becomes clear that Walter has been asking for these narratives from people because he Mm. is trying to ascertain the fact that the person who is dead is not Laura, but is Anne Catherick who was terminally ill. Um, Has a heart condition, yes. Yeah. Uh, so she knew she was dying, and she did end up dying at Count Fosco's under the name of um, Lady Glyde. But what is unknown to pretty much everyone is how this all 
went down. He goes to see Laura's, uh, sorry, Anne's mother. Is that right? Uh, first, he yes. goes to see her family friend who helped raised her, raise her. Mm-hmm. And then to her mother. Because we're trying to get to what Percival Glide's big secret was. The reason that he basically had Anne put in the asylum in the first place. When he goes out to do that, he goes to visit a church and realizes that Sir Percival has written in, because it kind of seems like maybe he is actually Anne Catherick's father, because her parentage is, like, really suspect. Her father is suspect. Um, Her mother very obviously was her mother. Um, But it seems like she duped her husband into having somebody else's kid, uh, which, you know, does turn out to be the case, but it was not Sir Percival's kid. The real secret is that he had forged his parents' marriage in the marriage records in the church. So he's not a baronet. He is lowborn, but he scammed his way to the top. I admire the hustle. Yeah. You have to. You have to. You have to respect the hustle. Yeah, he came by his title dishonestly, and that is, that's the big problem. So, uh, so after that, um, he realizes he's being followed. Walter realizes he's being followed and that Sir Percival comes to the church, tries to burn up the church records so that there's no evidence of this and ends up setting the entire church on fire and dying. Yes. And, and Walter does try to save him, but it is one of these weird things of like, this is where I thought, I'm like, oh, the book's done. Our villain has been killed. And then I looked, and I'm like, five more hours. Okay, what could possibly happen? And it is surprising. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for listening for this very special episode of Amateur Detective Club with Janet Varney. You can find her, uh, Janet Varney, on social media. Listen to her podcast, The JV Club, where she talks to people about their awkward adolescence. If you like hearing her voice and my voice at the same time, uh, you can check out her episode of Positive and Negative, one of my podcasts about mental health and the arts. She is, it's a great, fun interview, um, and it was really interesting hearing her story. We're on the Scavengers Network. You can go to scavengersnetwork.com. I was going to say slash ADC pod because I'm so used to the audible copy. (laughs) (laughs) Which might be like what the hyperlink is. Anyway, you can go to scavengersnetwork.com. Get a slew, a slurry, a a scrumdillyumptious palette of of various entertainment products, videos, uh, uh, ooh, uh, uh, Twitch streams, and uh, uh, podcasts all over the place right now. Um, yeah, and you can, if you like our show, you can wear it or drink from it. Uh, you can order merch. The link is in the show notes. I have concluded my moratorium. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ADCPod. We'll get you there. And join our Facebook group. Just answer those questions and we'll let you write in once we know that you're a person and not a bot. I'm television's Joyce DeWitt. 
No relation. <laughs> and I'm here to talk to you about our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can receive access to bonus episodes and content. If you have a little bit more to spend at $3 a month, you can receive early access to all the shows, plus bonus episodes and content. And at $10, you become an ace gumshoe. At this level, you can place an ad for you or your business during the show. You'll also receive early access to all the shows, bonus episodes, and content. Follow us at patreon.com slash adcpod. Do we have any ads this week? Yes, we do. But soup. I have a question for you, Tyler, or Joyce DeWitt. No, no relation. relation. Is the no relation to TVs or to Joyce DeWitt? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's thank you. Once again, I want to say thank you to Janet Varney for being on. And let's listen to the rest of the episode. Mrs. Uh, Catherick sends him this very long-winded letter explaining that she was basically duped into, bribed rather, into helping Sir Percival with this exchange, and then he blackmailed her for the rest of her life, but gave her an allowance, and so that's why she was like, bah, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, and 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 says... But the only thing is, I will not tell you who Anne's father was. How dare you? Yeah. Imply. I'm a lady, thank you. And clearly, you know. Yeah. Come on. And she gets very, very upset. Yes. Um, Then Walter gets delayed by an inquest of (laughs) this person dying because he's the only person that can identify the body. And he's like, well, uh uh-oh. So he's delayed in this little little town. It's a quiet village. Um, (laughs) But he receives this very abrupt letter from Marion going, hey, we've moved. Yeah. We've moved flats. Please come to this address. And immediately, as soon as you can. So he does. And it turns out that Count Fosco has been snooping around and um, met with Marion and was like, hey, just stop this whatever you're doing yeah basically (laughs) lay low and i won't leave you alone um yeah but so they kind of do wait it out for a couple of months and then um walter has implied to marion that he has like this other idea because he's like listen i mean this is great that we're friends and all but it doesn't seem like that close of a tie um for a wild moment, I was like, because he does talk about how he is he now loves Laura as a sister in her very disturbed state. Um, and it, like there's yeah, a te- she's real shaken up from being in an asylum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he like has a tender fatherly or brotherly affection for her. Um, and but then she kind of goes back to her old self and the old feelings come back. The way I am describing it is pales in comparison to how mm. it is the evolution is described in the book, of course. Um, but they do eventually fall back in love. She's mostly, you know, normalized, uh mm-hmm. back back to her normal self. Still and can't recall though what happened between her leaving 
Blackwater and her arriving at the asylum. That is completely blank in her mind. I mean, yeah, I, and you don't have to be. You could have some some sort of uh, mental illness that causes that blank, but you don't have to like that. Yeah, a, you just repress that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bad experience, and also it sounds very confusing. Um, yeah. She was essentially convinced that she was Anne Catherick. Yeah. Everyone told her that she was, and she's like, no. And then, like, everyone's like, oh, that's Anne. So, yes. So she's she's pretty much back to normal. She and Walter fall back in love, and eventually Walter talks to Marion and says, hey, can I marry your sister? And Marion's like, of course you can. Um, so they do get married. And finally... Walter is like, okay, the only thing left to do is restore Anne to her family name, to her actual name, and make sure that everyone knows she's alive. And the way to do that is I must confront the Count. Yep. And the way I know how to do this is I know a Italian. <laughs> I know! So I'm going to see if he knows this other Italian. <laughs> Maybe the wildest leap in this entire book. Yeah, he's like, hmm, Italy is small, yes? I mean... Surely everyone knows each other. But, um, so he goes to his friend Pesca, and they go to the opera, and it's the most disappointing scene, because Pesca doesn't know why they're there. He tracks the Count to this opera, and he gets tickets, and then he goes, hey, uh... Do you know that man sitting over there? And he's like, I've never seen that. I've never seen it, the man before in my life, which is basically what Ian Holm does. Very fun. Uh, uh, I, I love that he distinguishes, though. His Count Fosco mm -hmm. and his uh, Professor Pesca are very distinct from each other. 100%. Um, even though they are the two Italians in this book. Uh, <laughs> yes. um, and Pesca, I think, is fish. It's, Ooh. yeah, it's very close. Um, yes. Yeah. That's I've been thinking that the entire time. But he's like, I've never seen that man. But then Count Fosco looks and goes, ah, and he pales. And he's like, ah, and he like, during the first act intermission, like skedaddles. And there's also this other man, a, a blonde, blue-eyed man with a giant scar in front of them that also follows Count Fosco out. And they try to track him down. And then he's like, he, he must have gone. And so then they go to Feska's apartment. Mm -hmm. And and uh, Walter is like, hey, I need to tell you everything. So he does. And then it turns out that Feska is a part of like a secret society. So, um, Count, so Pesca has confessed to Walter like, Listen, I do owe you my life. I'm going to tell you about this, but you really need to not tell anyone I'm involved in this or I will be <laughs> yeah. I will be killed. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to trust you with this. So he calls it the Brotherhood. Yeah. Um which is not the real name. So, so it's that, Assassin's Creed. Sure. Yes. So I thought it was how to succeed in business without really trying, but sure. That too. That too. It's anything. So, yeah. So he says that he's part of this Brotherhood. And that it is, you know, a huge, uh, basically, he could be someone, he could be called on to kill someone Anybody, at any time. Any time. Yeah. Any place. So <laughs> when Fosco has recognized him, 
and like gets really pale and scared. You know, Walter essentially makes the sleep in mm. his own brain. Then he's like, oh, well, I mean, that means he's part of the Brotherhood, too. And even though Pesca doesn't recognize him, that doesn't that doesn't mean that Fosco's appearance is not very altered. Uh, yeah. And is clearly living under an assumed name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bet he's part of this, too, and has betrayed them. And that is why he is so scared. That's why he is paranoid about, you know, any Italians being near him, um, just in case. And this this whole thing made me so sad because they didn't get to finish the opera. I know. He <sighs> goes to his friend. He's like, can you get me tickets for this opera? And then he doesn't doesn't use them. No. It's so he sad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been a very lovely night. Yeah, uh, Donizetti's great, but <laughs> but Walter goes back to the apartment, and even Marion is like, "Hey, you're back really early. You didn't see the whole opera, did you?" And he's like, "No, um, right. I have to go right away. I'm confronting the count." And then he writes a note to Vesca, going, uh, "If I don't show up at your house by nine o'clock, um, this guy was part of the Brotherhood, and you should tell him, and he should be killed because that means he killed me." He writes a note back to him. Pesca writes a note back to him saying, mm. like, I will do exactly as you ask in more words, mm. more descriptive than that. Yeah. Um, so he goes to Fosco and says, hey, I need you to give me written proof of exactly when Laura left from the manor to London so we can get that all clarified. And... <laughs> He then says, okay, but you have to let me run away. And I also need you to hear, stay here all night while I write this extremely long note. Yeah. He this. does a full confession. He has a cup of coffee. They sit there basically until morning breaks. He leaves. And the last thing that Count Fosco says to him is like, oh, I just, uh, I just am so horny for Marion. Can you please tell her that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just like. Much. Oh, I can, but I'm not gonna. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So he, they yeah. finally have, they finally have it that, I uh, indeed Laura did not leave London until after Anne Catherick, who mm-hmm. you know, Fosco had made this elaborate scheme to scheme to take her in. Uh, he did not poison anybody. He wasn't trying to kill anybody. He like makes this big defense. He because uh, it was very weird when Marion was sick. It seems like he was trying to take over her care and like make her sicker mm-hmm. uh, with like these weird suspect remedies that like weren't real remedies, but like maybe he was poisoning her. And he gives this whole like I was never trying to kill anybody. See, I didn't have to kill anybody. I'm not a murderer. Um, I just took in this woman and swapped their identities. See how nice I am? And it's like, okay. I mean, I guess, but still not great, dude. Um, so yes. So he, they finally have this written confession. Uh, they take it to Laura's uncle. They make this whole to do in front of like the entire town of, reading it and saying, is this proof enough for you (laughs) that Laura's really alive? And they're like, yes, it is. And they have a whole ceremony of erasing from the tombstone what was on there before and, you know, rewriting it with a little simple like, Anne Catherick died on this date. Um, 
she's buried exactly where she wants to be next to Mrs. Fairley, who took such nice care of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then everyone uh, lives happily ever after. They have a baby. And he uh, after their uncle, Mr. Fairley, dies, he gets restored to all his titles and becomes like the uh, the son... Walter Jr. becomes the uh, inheritor of the lands and fortune or whatever. We did it. Nicely done. So what did we think of this? Janet, you're our guest. Overall, what do you think of this book? And what do you like and dislike and why? Uh, Oh, I think it's very charming. I definitely would not have picked it if if I had understood that you task yourselves with describing the entire plot of each book you review. I I just thought we would be talking about it with the assumption that someone would read it. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, Number one, I I think that uh, he did an amazing job of reminding the modern reader without knowing that there was going to be a modern reader without knowing what was coming in the future i think he did a really great job of showing how you would be able to tell a mystery in a very specific time for a very specific reason under very specific circumstances none of which can be duplicated today because things are wildly different but i think he did a really nice job despite the fact that yes it's very long and there are these sort of crazy side stories that make you feel like it's three different books that uh, he he has a reason for everything. So it doesn't feel like Lost, right? Which is a, a sad example. Like someday there will be a new example of a television show or some other story that <laughs> go, seems to go nowhere. Um, and I know that's a point of contention among Lost fans. But, uh, but rather than it feeling like he had to spit out a bunch of words a day and was just sort of trying to figure out where he was going with it as the, as the year wore on, um, it's... To me, it's very clear that he had like a very clear idea of how all of these things would have to fit exactly the way they needed to fit in order to have this puzzle look like it does. And despite the fact that it's preposterous, um, the thing that I care about, uh, and I think this is something that a lot of like wonks care about, is uh, is you can build a world that's preposterous. Just follow the rules in that world. And I feel like he does that, right? Whereas, like, a Christopher yeah. Nolan, for example, super fun to watch, but, like, he break, he doesn't ha- follow his own rules. Like, halfway through the movie, this thing that he's established in his movies will be like, oh, we'll just throw that away and we'll just give a different reason for it. And you have a sense of, like, but... No, but I'm only... But I only am frustrated because you told me that this thing couldn't happen and now it's happening. But you just, you know what I'm saying? Like that really bugs me. And so I feel like that I I feel like this is a really, really great um, example of, you know, regardless of the things that are that are maybe not as fun or that drag on or whatever about it is that. He's done a really nice job of like the string on the with the pictures uh, on in, you know when the cop is yeah. tracking the serial killer. Like you can see that he made sure mm-hmm. all the strings connected, and that all these things had to yes. be the way they were. And so I like that the world feels like a little ecosystem that makes its own sense. If that if that uh, if that makes sense, um, and I think that that he they wove in a lot of. Uh, social commentary i mean i think the fact that you know he's pointing out in the same way jane austen did for example like the the plots are so tied to 
this is because a woman doesn't have power because a person of lower class mm-hmm. doesn't have power because this 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 here are all the ways in which this structure is set up to be exploited by people like Sir Percival Glide, who, by the way, he does a really nice job of, they're not like onomatopoeic or like super literal in terms of like where you can tell if someone's a good person or a bad person. But there is with some of the characters like Percival Glide, you're going to tell me he's a good guy. Come on. Like he's smooth, right? He's <laughs> yeah. a smooth talking, primpy, peacocky, you know, dude. And so I also love the, I just love that feels very um, sweet and folksy to me. The idea of like, and I'll name my characters and you'll kind of be able to tell whether they're good or evil <laughs> based on their names. Uh, yeah. So, so that's, you know, those are all things. And, and I also, you know, from a meta perspective, I can, I, I, I feel like I can imagine how exciting it must have been to read these serialized things. And so for me, that's part of it too, is imagining waiting in anticipation for the next part of the story. And, and even just as a listener knowing, oh, this is a really long book and I can just keep listening. Um, I think he created that tension in such a great way. And, and, and it's really fun to get that as a sort of a lesson of like, here's how to end every single chapter with a cliffhanger <laughs> in a way that feels very expert because that was his job. Okay, that's said enough, but that's those are some of the things I like about it. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I feel similarly. Yeah, you're absolutely right in like the the way that the like the the red string and the pushpins are are all set up because yeah. I did I found myself being like, okay, we need to know what the secret is now. That is what we're after at the moment. It's like, okay, now we need to know the date. You know, like I, it, mm-hmm. all of those elements is like, I know exactly what we're looking for in this mystery. Um, and good misdirects too, right? Because aren't you like, they've got to be sisters. Yeah. They've got to be sisters. If they look like each other, they've got to be sisters. And it's like, that's not why it's important yeah. that they look like each other. It's a no. total misdirect. Yeah. Oh, and they probably were, actually. Well, maybe <laughs> they were. As it turns yeah. out. Maybe yeah, they were, but I don't like think they're clear. They're kind of unclear about... I feel like that's yeah, left unfinished. Yeah, I guess it is. I guess yeah. it is. Because um, I, I, went, I went there pretty early on, and then eventually uh, it does seem like probably Mr. Fairley was uh, maybe seeing... Dogging it up. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. right. You know what? I forgot. That's right. There's a point at yeah. which you don't know that, and it starts to just seem like it's a coincidence. But yeah, I, I, the characters are very solid. Um, I really like Walter. Um, I liked a lot of the side, like Fosco and Mr. Fairley were very, very funny and weird to me, and I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, I, I think the way in which it is written is very beautiful. Um, I would say I, I started it, it started enjoying it more once the case proper started. Like, I think mm. if anything, like there's this, it's um, also in the genre of sensation novel, which is like a romance with a drama, with a mystery element. And I'm like, oh, okay. Whereas like coming to this from a, from a standpoint of like liking mysteries, I wasn't expecting the, the Jane Austen of it all. Yeah. But, <laughs> but once I settled into that, I'm like, oh, this is lovely. Um, I enjoyed that very much. Um, I, I would just say, like, if it had gotten to the investigation a little sooner, I would have enjoyed it more, and I enjoyed that section of the book very much. I would also say, since it was serialized, if you're going to listen to this book, re- listen to a chapter a week, like, as kind of as it was intended, is what I would recommend. Um, it'll take you a bit, but, you know, that's that's what I, I would do. I think in 
Sir Ian Holm uh, <laughs> does a very fine job with this. I, I in, immensely enjoy his voice. He um, he played Frodo Baggins in a BBC radio production, and so I am so used that I listened to a lot as a kid. I'm so used to the way he says that. It's just he's such a beautiful and lyrical voice, and he does such a good job of because there's like narrated by and then there's performed by and this is definitely right. like a performance if oh, that yeah, makes very sense. Much so. It's yes. Yeah, you feel so, like he's in it. For everyone who had Tristan talks about the uh Lord of the Rings uh the, oh, whole, yeah. the version Bingo. that Ian yeah. <laughs> the, this is this is where you cross off your ADC pod uh Bingo mm-hmm. Square. <laughs> 100%. Very I brought nice. that up every time we've talked about Syrian. <laughs> I talked about this book. Uh, I talked about this book on, I think, the ep- one of the most recent episodes of my uh, podcast, possibly with Baron Vaughn. Uh, oh, yeah, because we were going down the road of, like, great Shakespearean actors. And I explained to him that um, for, like, kind of a long time during and after I had listened to the book, I would really annoy Brandon by trying to insert the woman in white into sentences where I would be like, <laughs> you know, this is this is actually one of the best meals I've had in a while. You know, it's not the kind of meal that uh, that you know certain people would have to get, like the woman in white. Like every time I would <laughs> yes. get it into the guttural whisper of like, oh my god, the woman in white. Uh, just l- every it felt right to just you know be like, yeah. I'll tell you who we won't see coming down the street is the woman in white. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just, was so I found it so adorable and it made me laugh every time and I just loved it. Yes, awesome. so great. So I constantly confuse this because I had never read it or seen any of the multiple adaptations of it. Um, but I saw a play in London when Ooh. I was there. I know <laughs> when I was there after uh, my high school graduation. <laughs> so you can cross that the reference <laughs> yep. on your ADC pod bingo square as well. Um, <laughs> but when I was there, uh, I saw the play called the woman in black, which is the longest one of like the second longest running, um, plays on the shows. West End. On, yeah, exactly. And so I would constantly confuse the woman in black with the woman in white when like the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical was being produced and whatnot. Um, of the woman in white I was like oh is that the woman in white yeah yeah is that is that the one I saw and then no it's not um and then actually in 2012 there was a film adaptation which is pretty good of the woman in black with Daniel Radcliffe oh see Um, I I thought that was a because I know neither of those I've never seen either had never known still don't know what the woman in black mm -hmm. is I thought in my head I was like I think they made a movie of the woman in white with Daniel Radcliffe that I never saw so there you go already (laughs) just switchable We're already like, who there. knows yeah right exactly so it is easy to confuse the two because Wait, so there's a musical you know, of the woman in white yes oh, there's an android wow. Webber. i musical. don't ever want to see it i just want to imagine what the songs all are <laughs> right yes for sure but uh they're completely different uh so woman in black is a 1983 horror novel oh by written by a woman named susan hill uh, in the style of a traditional gothic novel. So it's a similar oh, okay. time period. Um, <laughs> um, and it's a horror novel. And it is actually the... It's a fantastic production, partially because the woman in black, who is a ghost, um, yes, is walking around the theater. And it's terrifying. It is terrifying. <laughs> oh, that's I never, creepy. That's cool. 
Yeah, and it doesn't work as well in the movie because, you know, you don't have a, a, corp, a corpulent yeah. woman well, if, walking around. What if they released it in 3D? I mean, holographic you get, you get 3D a where just she is the hologram and everything else yeah. is just still on the screen. <laughs> exactly. So for some reason, I understanding that both of these are different books and or movies and whatnot, I still started reading this assuming that the woman in white was a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> he that's what he wants so and, it's good yeah because you don't yeah. know and it's so very I shakespearean it's spectral what is she the woman in white yes <laughs> exactly so i read this or i listened to this thinking that she was a ghost for about the first half of the book mm. so I, that was very fun for you me kept waiting I for someone to be like she's been dead for blah 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 years the whole <laughs> time yeah pretty much I had a very similar thing. That was my first instinct because I think, and then you and I had spoken about that, Melissa. And then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's where that came from. And then I was like, oh, clearly she's the, the former wife of Sir Percival Glyde, which was my first theory, mm-hmm. which was not the case. Right. Yeah. Not that I mean, that crossed my mind too. But there were so many misdirects and yeah. there was actually a moment because they laid so many clues about how Laura and uh, Anne looked so similar. I was like... I wonder if she's really dead before it was, you know, all revealed. So I felt very mm. smart, which I always like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but no, like it it's really fantastic in terms of the amount of clues that are left, but also the amount of surprises yeah. that there are. I, I thought um, that maybe it, she I thought maybe I thought that they had pulled somehow that that Walter had pulled the bait and switch and that Mm -hmm. they knew that that they that Anne was like like that Anne I had this whole story in my head that was like Anne (laughs) willingly sacrificed herself because she knew she was gonna die and that was like the last Mm. good thing she could do for Laura so somehow I kept waiting yeah kept waiting to be like they're gonna be like I guess we got you Fusco and it was like oh no that was he's no he still was that was all their plan that was still all their plan (laughs) shoot yeah yeah. So, big yeah. fan. Tyler, what do you think? What was your experience of this, Tyler? Yeah. You know, you were, you two were recapping uh, the story. And I just kept thinking to myself, wow, I really wish that I had experienced the same book. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, it's no disrespect to Wilkie Collins. Um to an extent, Ian Holmes, I guess. There's some disrespect. But <laughs> oh, no. his voice to me was just like white noise. But I think the thing is, like, and we've talked about this before. Because um, when I first joined the podcast, we did a bunch of listening to audiobooks. And there was a point where I was just like, I can't. I need to switch to reading the actual physical novel. And I think it's just an audiobook problem that I'm having. I remember texting the group and it was eight hours in. I was like eight hours and I can't tell you anything that has oh, happened in this book yeah. whatsoever. I'm sorry. So I just think that for me, like audiobooks just aren't my medium as a listener. That's fair. I need to like see the words on the page to like to really be engaged. But the story sounds incredible. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And I probably will buy the book now. Yeah. You, but um, you know what happens. I mean, yeah. I but, mean, but I reread books sometimes. Sure. Me and there are much. also <laughs> there are also a couple of film adaptations. Uh, yeah. 
there are silent films? Yes, there's several. There's like four. And then there's a German version. There's one with Andrew Lincoln from Walking Dead. You mean I could have cheated and just watched the movie the whole time? (laughs) (laughs) Interesting that there are that many things. That's what I thought was so fascinating about the whole Wilkie Collins thing was like that somehow we the four of us and i'm not the same age as you guys but like the four of us had no knowledge of this really on any kind of like true level yet then Mm. you but like there aren't i feel like there aren't that many things like that nowadays where somehow it totally escapes you whatever your experience is and then but then you look back and you're like well, this has as many adaptations as like this. These other five things that I've grew up hearing about, or of course read in high school, or whatever. Like it's it's a weird. Well, I feel like Wilkie Collins is like uniquely weird in how how uh, prolific he was and how beloved he was, and how if you look back, there are all these like wait, this person, this person, probably the Brits kind of cherish him differently. But I just think it's weird yeah. that, you know, that it's like he was the, he made that big of an impact and continues to apparently. And yet no yeah. one I knew had any idea what I was listening to or who that was either. <laughs> Do you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and and Tyler, I, I really I, I hear you. There are just certain voices that like are soothing in a in a white noise kind of way for different people. There is one podcast that I really like. Uh, that the narrator, uh, the host of it, has such a soothing voice that I cannot listen to it except when I am running because it is the only time that I, you know, can focus in my brain. I'm like, all right, I'm doing a physical activity and I'm listening to this and that's it. Because otherwise, like, I can't play a game on my phone while I listen to it because mm-hmm. I will totally space out and not under hear a word that she says. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. And it's not her fault. She has a great voice. It's just for some reason uniquely soothing. I'm like, mm, go, go sleep now. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it's a true crime podcast. It's not like I'm going to go to sleep podcast. Like, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel that way about Bobcat Goldthwait. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Oh, pick. so soothing. <laughs> Very soothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Do you yeah. have other thoughts, Tyler? No, because I didn't know the book. I don't. Okay. I don't know what happened, okay. <laughs> so I can't yeah. say anything. <laughs> did you really Understood. listen? Did you listen? Did you give up? I hope you gave up. No, I listened to all oh. all of the book. You know, there are worse ways to not remember twenty four hours, though true and i've been there (laughs) you know sometimes you take too much of a bump of speed before reading a book (laughs) that's a callback (laughs) thank you always always the best callbacks are when you identify them just afterwards that's callback that's always the best yes i learned that at the ucb yes Yes. oh though i will say something else for our two black listeners uh (laughs) When we were talking about the woman in white, all I could think about was Lisa Ray McCoy Missick. Damn. You can Google her. Okay. She Speaking of like, she why has called police? white her signature color, and you rarely see her like out photographed with her like not being an all white. Nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. Excellent. What color would you choose if you could only wear one color for the rest of your life? Good question. What color would you choose? Purple. Blue. Blue. Okay. Tyler. 
The woman in blue. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to test it out. Wanted to see how it Yeah. Felt. Felt good. good. Yeah, yeah, felt good. Oh, man, that's difficult. Like a dark gray. A gray. Yeah. Get the best Sophisticated. of Sophisticated. I, I think I would have to go with black. I think I would, you know, I forever want to be slim. You know? Yeah. And easily, <laughs> easily not seen. That's not how you say that. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> Easily not apparent, which is also something else. Um, Listen, you would have done very well in Wilkie Collins because yes. you just said something in 20 words that would have gotten you paid a lot more yeah. than just two words. Absolutely. His maximum amount of disappearancy was mm-hmm. due to the fact right. that he was clothed all but his toes in black, for he wore no shoes, sir. I'd love to hear more about what his toes look like. <laughs> his toes, both oh white and also a almost cream color, but also yellow at the tips for oh. he not bathed in Here's several days. Here's your check. Days. Here's your check. <laughs> yeah. Here's your check. I'm yeah. going to pay you for the, all the things you're, I'm not going to let you say. <laughs> Janet, uh, where can our listeners find you? Yeah. What are you doing? Uh, you I am, you can find me on social media, on Twitter, at Janet Varney, on Instagram, at the JV Club. I'm uh, like a one day at best checking in her. Sometimes I post, so it's not great, but um, (laughs) certainly I try to use that as a way of telling people where they can see stuff. Uh, I have a really fun, um, strange, weird, great cartoon job on Quibi right now where I play three different uh, Zodiac signs in uh, this weird Will Arnett's company. It's a cartoon where you get your daily horoscope in the form of just like a very weird, dark uh, (laughs) cartoon of of the Zodiac animals who work at an office together. It sounds kind of bad, but it's actually sounds really good. (laughs) It's very weird. And yeah, it's 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 surprisingly just like really funny and sharp. Mm -hmm. It's been really fun. Yeah, and uh, and you can listen to my podcast, The JV Club. It's free. It's on the Max Fun Network or anywhere you find your podcasts. I interview people about their awkward teenage years. Yeah, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. Thank you well. so much for being on, Janet. Yeah. Yes, this has been oh, really fun. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having Oh, Tyler. It was it. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Will you even remember this conversation? Yes, I will. <laughs> <laughs> If there's one thing you take away, yeah, yeah, I just I would the ta- I guess if there's one thing that I would hope that you would remember, if it's not the four of us, it's the woman in white. <laughs> <laughs> that's, really that's a callback. Yeah. <laughs> that's a callback. The, saying that's a callback is also a callback. Uh, we, okay. uh, sh- Here we go. I love yes. it. Yes. Uh, so good. Uh, and with that, I called this meeting of the Amateur Detective Club to a close. Gavel sound. Woman in white.